Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Professor, how about emotional intelligence or emotional awareness when it relates to our clients? Right. We are obviously have our own relationship with, with a client, hopefully, you know, unless it's, you know, being done on a computer or something, that's a really relevant relationship, our own relationship as a person to that person. Now, the client can often have very, very strong, visceral, emotional reactions to what they're going through. And not too many people outside the corporate world are seeing a lawyer when they're in a great space, right? So they're feeling emotional and um, you really have to walk a, a fine line there because you want to make sure they know that you know how they're feeling. But you can't just dive into the pit with them because if you do that, then you're not going to be useful to them. So you have to have the compassion to say, I totally, I feel very badly. I understand how you feel. Although, you know, that can often backfire because you don't really know. But, you know, to show compassion, to really listen, but not get into that really deep emotional, you know, downward spiral yourself is difficult. So you're going to have to have a little bit of non-attachment there as well. And it's difficult but the practice can help. You can get up, you can do some breathing, you can go for a walk. There's a need to, you know, there's actually a third layer, which is that after you have shown compassion and then not, you know, fallen apart over the deal in front of your client, your opponent, the court, you then need to take care of yourself afterwards. Recognizing that, you know, we're not the super women and men that we might like to be. Right. And there's a name for this sort of thing. And it's like this last year, all the healthcare providers had it, but it's compassion fatigue. So fine line, you know, it is, it is dichotomous to have to be compassionate, but not completely lose it and still walk out of it somewhat unscathed with your own life. Is that that battle-weary attitude that we often see in our older colleagues? You know, I've seen it all yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah, and it does. I, I, it's, it's interesting that you say that, you know, the, the more senior ones, especially, um, that have mastered a little bit of non-attachment, but are also still good colleagues and good people are the ones that survive the best. And they also look better, right? You know, not going back to how stress can really um, exhaust the body. On the other side, you've written about the importance of vulnerability. So how do you how do you square that? So you need to be able to let your client's stresses wash over you. You need to have emotional intelligence so you can understand what they're going through, but also not dive into their experience too personally. How do you add vulnerability into that mix? So I don't actually find that to be at odds with any any of it. Um, I know this is hard to believe, and and I do have an article about this, but the doctors who screwed up and apologized to their clients after a medical malpractice generally didn't get sued. The ones that like hurt people and then disappeared did. And this is a great lesson for lawyers. Let's just start with, let's say you made a mistake and you, it didn't, 
do too much harm, but you could have done a better job. And you can either shove that under the rug or you could actually tell the client, you know, it might have been better to do X, Y, and Z. Now you would think, oh my God, I'd never do that. That would be so scary. They might fire me. They might sue me. I don't think so. I think they want to know that we're people too. And everybody appreciates vulnerability, especially over the the um, blowhards who are always right about everything. Well, it sounds like when when you're saying vulnerability, you mean just an accurate self-assessment, recognizing mistakes. Does that also mean emotional vulnerability, willingness to, you know, put our emotions at risk? So the analytical assessment, I mean, that you can see how mindfulness helps with that, right? As you're kind of watching, you're aware of what the things are that you're doing that might be stepping in you know, getting in your own way, but you're not judging it, you're just noting it. And then on the emotional side, oh, yes, I mean, if you don't ever want to show any emotions to a client or to a colleague or, you know, a boss or something, then I don't think that you're going to be as healthy and you're not going to be as appreciated by other people. We, We like vulnerable people. You can think about it yourself. Who do you like, you know? How do you square this with that old attorney creed of, uh, C-Y-A. Yeah, that's a toughie. (laughs) I'm familiar with it, that's for sure. Practiced for a long time before I took this job. I think that the C-Y-A letter or the whole C-Y-A concept is probably misguided. But I'm sure everyone's going to push back against that. (laughs) I mean, part of the reason lawyers have such a bad reputation is that you know, people think that they care more about themselves than their clients. So you might not have to call yourself out on every mistake, but it would be good to think about why we exist in the first place. We've touched on on some of the impacts of, of mindfulness, but let's talk about it with some greater depth. What can mindfulness do for us? Uh, what can it do for us as lawyers? What can it do for our clients? So first, I just want to say that for people who don't know this, there are a bunch of apps that you can get uh, that will help you with the practice, because I want people walking away not knowing what they should exactly do. And those include Calm, the Insight Timer, Headspace, and, and things like that. Some are free and some are not. So in my mind, I think of the benefits in three big, huge categories. But the first is stress relief. And that's sort of the, the gateway here. So if you decide you're going to commit to either, you know, a six or 10 minute meditation practice or going for a long walk uh, where you try to focus on your breath or even a short walk or any other practice, that's probably going to be the place where you see the benefits first. The next one is efficiency. So if you can clear your mind a little bit, particularly in the morning and then in little spaces, kind of spurts like we talked about, then you're going to get more work done in less time. You're going to be more efficient. You are not thinking clearly after reading a 50-page document straight through. It helps to take little breaks. You'll get it done not just more quickly, but also better, uh, which we always want that. And so that's a huge benefit. We all need more time. It's the one thing they say that they're not making more of. There's no Apple product for it. No, you can't buy that stuff. <laughs> uh, third thing for us anyway is the, this um, clarity of purpose and uh, 
you know, thinking about our lives and how we're living them and whether we're living in a way that's going to make us and our loved ones happiest. Are we fulfilling our, our life goals and that sort of thing? Now, how does a client benefit from all of this? That's a great question. Uh, number one, and again, we're, we're bucking up against this idea that we sell time, right? So if something takes less time, well, that's less expensive. That earns less money for the firm. It's better for the client, right? So the client gets better work in less time. That's the first thing. Second thing is we said mindfulness was one of the byproducts of it is emotional intelligence. So you're going to get an attorney that is more self-aware and that is also more aware of the experiences of others, less focused on him or herself. So that's a big benefit to a client. Easier to work with, more intuitive. Right. I, I actually think it saves time in other ways because of the reason that you just mentioned, you know, being more intuitive. Because, you know, if you think about the last really great idea you had, you know, where was it? Of course, it was in the shower. I mean, it, that, that clearing, that mind clearing experience is going to create more creativity. And there are also other physical practices, which, you know, I realize we're not talking about physical practices. But, but yeah, so, so that clearing... And like in yoga, just, you know, kind of rubbing, you know, your face around on the mat or whatever, that cleansing and clearing uh, of the mind is where the creativity comes in. And so you might realize after one of these mindful experiences that you were going to do A, B, and C for this case, but really it's B. I mean, that's what you have to do. And you don't really need to do A. And C, we'll wait and see what happens after we do B. But, you know, you can get that sort of clarity. And a question you didn't ask me, but I'll throw it out there anyway, and you can cut it if you have to. But there's also just a bigger picture, right? Like we talked about the profession. We talked about uh, society a little bit. One person can make a big difference. So you can benefit yourself. You can benefit your clients. You can benefit your definitely your family, your kids, your partner, whatever. But lawyers have a big impact on society, too you know, as a collective. And each one of that, you know, those collectives starts with one, one human being. That's a, a bold way of looking at it. And, uh, you know, if lawyers can, can go back to the front of the class in terms of reputational and, and societal respect, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, it's actually every person has a big impact. But we're a little bit special, right? I mean, we're in charge of courts. We're in charge of many legislatures. We order society. So Many of our, our viewers today play important leadership roles in, in companies, if not firms, in government roles, and their, their actions influence others. You know, one thing that struck me in what you were saying was how sometimes in a negotiation, it isn't about being smarter it's not even necessarily about having read the documents more closely, although that is a huge help. Sometimes it's about understanding what the other side actually wants or what your client really wants. There, I would imagine some of this observational boost and emotional intelligence can play, uh, can pay dividends. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the documents because, you know, it is true that going into any negotiation, you know, you do have to sort of prepare for a trial or for whatever would happen if it didn't work out. And, and I've seen 
so many times, you know, the person that has the best or the team that has the best sort of handle on the facts is, is just has this huge benefit. So I don't want to say that all you have to do is meditate and go into these meetings and everything will be great. You also need to be great at the lawyering part. Right. But I will say that, of course, you know, if you're able to pick up on something that will help you figure out what the other side really needs or what, what your side really needs, and you can use this sort of contemplative practice to really pay attention to what's going on. So this also goes back to forgetting about what you're going to say next, right? I mean, we all go through life just figuring out how you're going to respond to what somebody else said. What we're missing is the chance to actually listen to people. And I think that's a really lost skill. You can really learn a lot by paying very close attention to what other people are saying. What'd you say I didn't hear? I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Bad joke. There have been a number of studies looking at at mindfulness. Um, one focused on law was called the six minute. What was it called? The six minute miracle study. It's actually just. Uh, I'm not sure it has a name, but what it did is it studied lawyers after they meditated six minutes a day for 21 days. Gina Chow is her name. I mean, she's written a mindfulness book for lawyers that I believe is also an ABA book that is excellent. And she's got a bunch of different meditation practices. It's wonderful. But yeah, she did the study. It was self-reported. So, you know, it wasn't, uh, uh, maybe wouldn't have the same sort of empirical value as a lot of other studies, but she had people meditate for six minutes for 21 days. And then they ranked how they were feeling on various levels. And that's when we found out about this efficiency thing. I mean, the people knew about it, but people said sleep was better. Their, their relationships were better. But the biggest jump was in the amount of work that people could get done in, uh, you know, in a certain time period. We've been talking about the practice. Uh, is that a capital T, Professor? Not a capital T, but maybe a capital P. <laughs> capital P. But within the practice, uh, there are a number of different, I suppose, types of practice. Uh, maybe you can break that down for us a little bit. I'd love to. So the word mindfulness is used in a lot of different settings, and it means a different thing for each of the traditions. There's a bunch of different types of meditation, but I use it, and nowadays we're very modern, and we use it to mean either a formal practice or an informal practice. At least that's what I uh, use it for. And a formal practice, generally speaking, um, if we're talking about meditation, is a sitting practice. So you're seated upright with your body nice and straight, feet on the ground if you're in a chair or in sort of modified lotus if you're on a cushion, and you either set a timer or uh, come up with some other benchmark for how long you're going to sit, and then you just begin to sit. And focusing on the breath is a really good gateway for that one. So that's a formal meditation practice. There's a bunch of informal mindfulness practices that we spoke about, you know, doorknobs and phones and, you know, marking places in documents to get up and move your body and just count the breath and that sort of thing. And some other informal practices include another one that we spoke about briefly, and that was watching the thoughts so that you could see what you could learn about how you might be sabotaging yourself. Now, in addition to meditation, there are also some other mindfulness practices. So one that I love, and Gina Cho talks about it in her book, is the mantra practice. 
And I always thought that was really brave. Like I didn't mention mantras in my book at all. I figured people would think it was too hippie. But it doesn't have to be in Sanskrit. It can be or in, you know, like the the really ancient, you know, religious languages. It can be in English. And so what what we what I like to ask people to do, and you might try this, you know, after the this podcast, is to just take out a an index card and just write a couple of affirmations. It's helpful after you listen to your thoughts because you'll know what you're doing. What's an example of an affirmation that you've seen? I actually have quite a few examples because believe it or not, I've written these for people based on what they say is bothering them. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. So it's really powerful. But let's say you're just feeling not good enough. Okay. A really fantastic one for that is I do enough. I am enough. I have enough. Let's say you have a problem, a big problem in law school is you begin to use external markers of success, right? So I made law review or I got on the dean's list, but not so much I'm really doing what I care about. I'm helping someone, you know, I'm increasing my knowledge. And so for that, you know, something like I beat to my own drummer, I know my own values, For one of the leaders at the law school, there was one that said, basically, I can't please everyone, but I have this institution's best interests in mind. So they're very tailored. But, and then you post it on your computer until you learn it really well. And then you just repeat it. And you repeat it throughout the day. You repeat it during a meditation session. You repeat it while walking around. Uh, Any of the above. And the ancient ones, you know, the Sanskrit ones, if I do a mantra practice early in the morning, then that will just, I will just run it in my mind, you know, throughout the day. It's really helpful. And there for a lot of different things as well. And I have a chapter in the happy, I think it's called the, you know, the happy, healthy lawyer or something. And it's another ABA book where I have a bunch of suggested mantra practices. Professor, what about practice? What about the practice of gratitude? What what do we mean by that? So this also can take many different forms. And there's a practice in my book. It's the very last chapter. They have actually done empirical research that shows that if people do a practice, it improves their heart conditions. This is so crazy. I know it sounds a little bit woo-woo, but the details are in the back of the book. The easiest practice that I have used it's super easy. It takes 10 seconds a day is that you get a calendar out and each day you write three things that you're grateful for. So it seems a little bit similar to the, the mantra practice, but perhaps more self-reflective. Well, the mantra practice is more to address a certain sort of negative self-talk that you might be giving yourself, or it can be for wealth or for intellectual you know, strength, if you're doing a Sanskrit one, this is more you just reflect on your life and you think about some things that you're really happy about. So I'd say that the mantra practice is sort of the other side, you know, you, you're not necessarily feeling completely whole. And so you're going to talk yourself into it in a way that's actually effective. And then the other one is you're looking at it and saying, I am so grateful. I mean, for example, I am so grateful that during the COVID I wasn't living in Philadelphia where I'm from, but I was living here because you can go outside every day and that sort of thing. And those of us who are not sitting where you're sitting don't know, but outside your window is a 
a lush golf course, not a, yes. not too bad on the eyes. An environmentally irresponsible golf course, but still, it's beautiful. <laughs> Another thing, you know, during we've just gone through this this big uh, sort of uh, reckoning in terms of inequality in our society. It's been there the whole time, but we now know much more about it than we did a year ago. And so another way to do the gratitude practice is to recognize ways in which we're privileged. And as I say to the students, you know, you're all privileged, whether you grew up on one of the Pueblos or the Navajo Nation or an immigrant community in South Albuquerque, you are privileged because you're here, right? Like you're getting this incredible opportunity to change your life and the lives of others. So that can be super helpful. Like what are some ways in which I'm privileged? Express gratitude for that. And then, you know, maybe think of some ways to help level the playing field a little bit for others. Before we let you go, why don't we talk about how we can, maybe some tools, some tips, some best practices as lawyers in our daily lives or as leaders in our companies or law firms to improve the lives of our, our, our colleagues and of course ourselves using mindfulness. I, know, I don't want to just send you to a bunch of resources, but I want to mention one. So the ABA now has a wellness toolkit. And um, if you just Google, you know, ABA wellness toolkit, you know, you'll come up with a bunch of ideas that you can use in your organizations and your firms. But there's no question the first stop has to be giving space for people to talk about these issues, to talk about some of the problems that have been materializing in the profession. And as I said before, I don't find it useful to, you know, pull people into a room and talk about alcoholism for, you know, 50 minutes. That just makes people want to drink, to be honest. But you can let them know that, you know, it is a risk and then start addressing what you do about it, right? So one thing with the alcohol is that some firms are creating happy hours that are not so focused on alcohol. I mean, I guess first step is just having really interesting cocktails that don't have booze in them. But then you can also create groups or programs where you talk about um, how to create wellness. You know, what are some of the things you can do? Trying to help people, again, be more well-rounded, have hobbies, talk about how you can sort of improve the environment of these, you know, workspaces. So programming, basically. I know that some of the large law firms have have begun offering mindfulness classes. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, we did an interview with John Quinn, who runs a large law firm. And I believe that he said he allows lawyers to bill a certain amount of time to mindfulness practice, which I thought was a nice innovation. Is it creating the space? Is it creating a curriculum? Is it adding a mindfulness room to the office? What types of things have you seen that stood out in your mind? Yes, yes, and yes. And if we were doing this where I could take you guys downstairs, I'd show you we just created a wellness center at UNM Law, and it's got a a meditation room uh, in addition to a weight room and a yoga room. Are people allowed to nap in there? Well, it hasn't, because of the COVID, it hasn't opened yet. But um, I don't know if you could nap. I suppose you could, as long as you didn't snore too loudly. But yes, you need space, meaning create space in lives, right? So not physical space. And that's a conversation. That's like you sit down with people and say, you know what, we know this is a hard profession. Some of that's outside our control, but we're here for you. And let's have a conversation about the stress. 
Let's have a conversation about what it is that we're going through so you know you're not alone. Let's be realistic that, yeah, you make us a lot of money, but we also want you to stick around and, and live a healthy life. How do we do both? Right. And Morgan Lewis, I know, I'm, I think I mentioned him from Philadelphia, but Morgan Lewis now has a wellness director. This is, you know, the largest firm in Philadelphia. They also have offices in D.C. And, and maybe New York, too. But I know about this person because I met her at a conference. So I think some people are waking up to it. It would matter to me a lot if I felt supported, even if I still had to bill, you know, however many hours a month, just knowing that somebody actually cares whether I, you know, live or die. Um, Somebody actually cares if I survive this process. I think that goes a long way. I don't want to be cynical, but that may actually make you want to work harder for them. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's the dichotomy of this whole conversation is that it feels like it's impossible And in some settings, it will be. But in most, it's going to be win-win. You make somebody feel appreciated, they're going to want to be loyal. Why don't we end on that happy note? Professor, thank you for taking the time to zoom in with us today. And I know I personally will will try and implement some of your your wisdoms and tips in, in the coming weeks. And start by just, oh, I was going to say, don't play the radio on your way home, but you live in New York, so you're probably walking. <laughs> oh, and I'm such a podcast listener. I should probably turn it off uh, every once in a while and just uh, focus on where I am. Just for a few minutes, and then you can go back and learn all you like. So. Well, thank you for your time. No, thank you. A quick stop for those listening for attorney CLE credit. The code for this interview is 92291. Again, that's 92291. And now back to the interview. As an addendum to the conversation, we'll be providing three additional resources, um, some tips and practices for dealing with the stress and mental health challenges of the current moment. Um, the first is is related to anxiety. It's not a surprise, perhaps, that lawyers as a group tend to be relatively anxious. Some studies have, su- have suggested that high anxiety in the legal community can be as high as 20%. So we'll share some tips coming from a, a piece written by Stephanie Ward, an author uh, with the ABA Journal. These are five practical tips and uh, perhaps if you're if you're feeling high anxiety give them a try so first stephanie writes that you know one useful technique could just be expanding the light and and shining your your attention on others so perhaps calling up uh, a law school friend and checking in to hear about their life even if it's learning about their problems that can provide a focus on something else. A second tip is writing down one's fears. Well, here as lawyers, I I assume many of us very much enjoy writing, but the exercise itself may provide a benefit. Another is practicing gratitude. Here, for those who have a gratitude practice, may be obvious, but it is listing 
things that one is grateful for, perhaps vocalizing things that one is grateful for. And a fourth example, and we'll get into this a little bit more, actually it relates to sleep hygiene. Again, anxiety can be exacerbated, according to Stephanie, by, um, by poor, poor sleep. And finally, this one, again, shouldn't be a surprise for many of us, look for some simple joys in our lives. Um, Stephanie describes some lawyers who, who might enjoy walking um, to a pastry shop to their favorite bakery and, and in, indulging in a treat or watching something silly on TV. A next resource is on something that I found fascinating, which is catastrophizing a way of thinking always about the worst that is apparently very human and in the current times all too easy to do. The, the author of this piece, the expert Martin Seligman, is a professor at UPenn and the director of the Center for Positive Psychology, or Penn's Positive Psychology Center. And Dr. Seligman describes how catastrophizing, thinking about the worst, is sometimes beneficial, but not particularly realistic. The worst case scenario isn't certainly isn't always the most probable. It's also, I think, in some ways akin to the way lawyers think, which is looking for, uh, looking for how contracts can fail or trying to think through what could be the, you know, the worst possible outcome in a, in a litigation. We're trained perhaps to think and solve for our clients' worst possible outcomes. And, and so this catastrophizing may be exacerbated by the way that we think. That part isn't in Seligman's piece, so I'll, I'll not put those words in his mouth about, about lawyers in particular, but Seligman does provide a few steps to avoid catastrophizing in the current scenario, in the current situation, with COVID-19 still out there. And so I'll share that with you. One is, again, part of catastrophizing is thinking of what could, what could be the worst outcome. I'll do it personally. So what's the worst possible outcome related to COVID-19? I suppose for me, it would be contracting the virus and then passing it on to my loved ones who who had then uh, perhaps killed. That would be the worst possible outcome. Force yourself to think about the best outcome. So in that case, the best outcome is uh, if I contract the virus, it'll uh, pass quickly and without much symptoms. Step three is to consider what's most likely to happen. Most people who contract COVID-19 are left relatively unscathed by the virus. So the most likely outcome is if I catch COVID, I'll, I'll be sick for a few days and then get back with my life. And then step four is to make a plan for the most realistic scenario. Again, this is a little different than saying don't waste your time on something that's unlikely to occur. According to Seligman, this is focusing on what's most likely. So here, 
I should be planning for, for those days when I do get sick, what, what steps should be put in place to take care of family members or to maintain my work obligations. So, I mean, that's his basic suggestions for catastrophizing. I think just as helpful is thinking about how what catastrophizing is and understanding that that's a natural thought process for us and and realizing that there we're not alone there and there are some strategies like this one to cope with it and finally as promised we'll share some aba suggestions on sleep some of these may seem obvious um, but as a good reminder we'll we'll share them here as well as a link one is to avoid stimulants obviously no one's chugging a coffee right before they go to bed, but you may want to cut those out. They recommend six hours prior. Two is creating a, a nice, uh, a more ideal sleep environment. Noise levels, lighting, temperature, air quality. Temperature recommendation is between 65 and 70, which may seem cold to some of our viewers. And fresh air is helpful for promoting sleep. Third, is the importance of routine your body your circadian rhythm it is a routine by staying up all night to close a deal you can't expect that the next night's sleep will go back to perfect immediately so to the extent possible if you can create that routine um, and defend it and then a few more I'll, I'll go through these kind of quickly sleep when you're tired use light to your advantage so this I think is is actually quite helpful in the mornings. So you know you may want to set an alarm that includes a light. And then you know they they give some suggestions for recovering from sleep deprivation, and we'll let you explore those on your own, and we'll include a link. As always, thanks for watching. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.